1: Our nation's capital. It's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon,
0: the host of Deadline DC. I'm a national Democratic strategist, a columnist for the Messenger in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles. Uh, If you want to read my columns in the Messenger, uh, you can take a look at them at Uh, muckrap.com front slash Brad Bannon front slash articles my company Bannon Communications Research polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions and Democrats Mondays on Deadline DC I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward Uh, Joining me today uh, is my intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, uh, who keeps the show online and the train running on time. Uh, Congress is back in session, and Mika Solna, Congress reporter for Punchbowl News, is back in action on Deadline DC to discuss the possibility of a government shutdown. Then in the second half hour, CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force, retired, talks about the lasting legacy of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. We have to start to show off. We have this clip from uh, Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow from Michigan, uh, a Democrat who talks about the, effect, the harmful effects of a government shutdown.
2: Extreme members of the House are trying to derail the agreement the Speaker of the House made with the President of the United States and trying to derail our progress. A government shutdown threatens the safety of Americans in every single area of our lives support for the troops and national defense, air travel, rail safety, food inspections through the USDA. Basically, our ability to provide Americans with the daily services that they need and deserve. Not to mention the hardship that will be created for millions of hardworking public employees. You know, there's so much good news right now. We're rebuilding America, bringing jobs home from overseas, creating a manufacturing renaissance, and I can say that from Michigan. That it's very exciting to see what's happening on manufacturing. 187,000 jobs created in August alone. 13.5 million jobs created during President Biden's just first two and a half years. This isn't by accident. Democrats are focused on growing the middle class of this country and about bringing down costs. A Republican government shutdown would completely undermine our country's progress right now. We are committed to a bipartisan approach to governing our country. That's what the American people want and that's what they deserve.
0: That was uh, United States Senator uh, Debbie Stabenow from Michigan uh, talking about the harmful uh, impact uh that would occur if there's a government shutdown in 20 days and there may very well be we really don't know but to help us figure that out our guest in this half hour is Mika Solna uh who is uh, re- reports on congress for punch news uh she is uh her specialty is covering the House Republican majority caucus in the House of Representatives, uh, which I imagine keeps her very busy. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Mika. I'm glad you could make it.
3: Thanks for having me on, Brad.
0: Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, Today is uh, September 11th. Uh, The federal government, uh, the Congress and the president need to reach agreement on a new budget uh, by the end of this month, which is only 20 days away. Uh, what's the holdup?
3: Yeah, so we're about to see this big spending fight, uh, you know, break out on Capitol Hill as we've been already seeing play out for the last few months. But essentially, uh, House conservatives within the Republican Party are really kind of holding hostage, as you could say, some of the, uh, uh, you know, the the path forward on getting a budget done and funding the government before this deadline. So now we're seeing members, particularly in the House Freedom Caucus, but also those aligned with that group, ask for, uh, you know, stronger spending cuts that go before COVID-19 levels. Um, so limiting uh, spending, defunding the DOJ and the FBI, as well as other programs, um, you know, such as diversity programs, uh, abortion policies, and just get a very like hardline conservative agenda across in order for them to vote on funding the government or even a short-term stopgap at this point.
0: Okay, now... Uh... Remind me and our viewers and listeners, uh, didn't the president and uh, the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, come to an agreement on the budget uh, earlier in the summer?
3: Yeah, so you might uh, remember during the big uh, debt limit fight, we did see Speaker McCarthy and uh, President Biden, uh, you know, negotiate there and come to an agreement. But we have to remember that there was a large group of Republicans, or I should say a a smaller group, I should say, uh, of Republicans in the House, uh, you know, really disagree with the terms of that agreement, saying that it didn't go far enough, it didn't really achieve the things that House Republicans wanted to do in their limit uh Save Grow bill that was initially what they wanted to pass. So we're still seeing conservatives and the right flank of the party really kind of uh, unhappy here as they've been unhappy with a lot of uh, uh, the issues of this Congress and have been able to yield their power of having a small majority to, you know, kind of achieve some of their goals and go a little bit further than I think some of their uh, colleagues want to.
0: OK, now, doesn't uh, the attempt by the uh, conservative Republican caucus, the Freedom Caucus, doesn't that undermine the speaker's authority? I mean, he already agreed to a deal with the president. Uh, doesn't this, isn't this a, you know, a, a undermine the speaker's authority?
3: Speaker McCarthy's in a really, really difficult position uh, with his very, very small majority in the House. And that does kind of tie his hands a little bit when it comes to things like this and must-pass legislation, because he really has to take into consideration the desires of, you know, those on the right. But he's also playing kind of a balancing act, because a lot of their needs of those, um, you know, who are are more conservative in the caucus and who are being a lot more vocal about their demands, uh, you know, getting a lot more airtime to kind of paint the party as being, you know, just very, very conservative and maybe, you know, in the uh, deep red districts aligned with what they want. But McCarthy also has to keep in mind that he's got 17, 18 very vulnerable Republicans, too, that are being put in tough positions to take tough votes on some of these red meat issues. So he's got a very uh, difficult balancing act to, to do.
0: Yeah, there are now, refresh my memory if I'm wrong, uh, there are about 25 members of the Freedom Caucus and Speaker McCarthy has oh, a five or six vote majority in the House, so he can't afford uh, to lose many of them if he can't um, you know, come to some sort of agreement with them.
3: That's right. Um, yeah, he's definitely going to need every vote he can get here.
0: OK, well, let me ask you this question. If uh, he does work out something with the Freedom Caucus, are there you know, there are few, are there any moderate members in the House caucus who, you know, might blanch at these demands or will they just follow along?
3: That's a great question. And we did see moderate Republicans, such as uh, some of these New York Republicans that are in more purple districts, uh, in districts won by President Biden in 2020, uh, kind of, you know, becoming a little bit more vocal as this Congress progresses, and some of them have said that they didn't want to uh, uh, overturn, they wanted to keep certain provisions when it comes to abortion access, which is highly popular in their districts, in uh, some of these funding bills. Obviously, that's, you know, very different from what uh, HFC Freedom Caucus members are asking who are very staunchly, uh, you know, more socially conservative, very anti-abortion. So their their desires are really differing here within the conference, which is, makes it, you know really difficult, but really also just kind of an interesting way that things are playing out too. So I think that uh, we're going to see these members butthead a lot more uh, uh, when it comes to you know this issue, especially if there is a government shutdown, but even moving forward as House Republicans continue to hold the majority.
0: Okay. Our guest in this half hour is Mika Solna, Congress reporter for Punchbowl News. Her uh, sure, uh, beat is the House Republican uh, majority Caucus, um, which is the center of the action these days. Uh, we're going to uh, take a short break now uh, to uh, give our radio listeners a little vacation. Uh, but Meek and I will continue this discussion uh, for our viewers on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, so don't go anywhere. We're going to take a very short break for our TV, our TV. Facebook, and Twitter viewers, and be right back. I'm your host, uh, Brad Bannon, and our guest in this half hour is Mika Solna, who covers Congress, especially the House of Representatives, uh, for Punchbowl News. Uh, Mika, let me ask you about a, a different topic. Uh, there have been demands from some members, again, of the Freedom Caucus for uh, for the House to move uh, to impeach uh, Joe Biden, Uh, is that likely to happen?
3: We're seeing a uh, potential impeachment inquiry uh, more and more likely to happen, especially after Speaker McCarthy has really uh, kind of been, you know, interested in this issue a lot more uh, in the last month or so. Uh, Chip Roy, who was up here on the Hill today, said that you know this is something that he wants to see, and that he thinks that there's uh, you know more than enough evidence to launch an impeachment inquiry. Uh, that said, I would say not all House Republicans, however, are bought spot, spot on that. Uh, on the evidence that's been presented mostly in the oversight committee led by Congressman uh, James Comer, who's been investigating the Biden family and and Hunter Biden's business deals and how that's impacted um, national security, uh, you know, in his view. Um, And, and uh, we're seeing, you know, Republicans kind of split. We saw Ken Buck of Colorado, who is a Freedom Caucus member come out and say he doesn't think that there's enough evidence to launch an inquiry. So it's really interesting to see this, play out. And again, I'm just going to add uh, again that this is going to put those vulnerable Republicans again in a tough position to kind of make uh, a decision to support uh one an inquiry but then later a potential impeachment vote in districts that Biden remains a lot more popular than uh Republicans.
0: Now, uh the Constitution says that the uh that uh, the House can impeach the president, uh, and the Senate has the power to remove him. Uh if he's, if the president's committed uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, what high high crimes and misdemeanors do uh, House Republicans have in mind uh, in in uh, proceeding with the impeachment of the president?
3: So we're seeing Chairman Comer uh, come out and, and tease that he's got more evidence coming out in his investigation. But so far, I think this is going to be largely uh, related to, uh, you know, p- potentially uh, President Biden's alleged role in um, Hunter Biden's business dealings while he was vice president. So a lot of it's leaning on some of the stuff that we've long heard. Um, so we're I think that Republicans will be revolving it around that. And then some of their witnesses of um, who, you know, maybe know the younger Biden and and, and so forth who have come out. Um and then obviously the DOJ is uh planning to indict Hunter Biden later this month too, which is gonna obviously ramp up, I think, uh House Republicans probes here. Um so a lot of it is related to that.
0: Uh let me ask you this question. would it I know this is a stupid question, but I'll ask it anyway. I'm famous for my stupid questions on the show. Wouldn't it make sense if this is if a Biden impeachment is going to be based on his relationship with his son, that the Republicans wait for the legal process and the Hunter Biden trial before they impeach the president?
3: Um... I think that uh, the investigation is going to be aligned with what the Justice Department is doing. But I think that we should also keep in mind that a lot of House Republicans have uh, discredited uh, the Department of Justice itself and said that they believe that the process is uh, you know, more in favor of the Biden because it's under the administration. So there's a lot of distrust there among the party when it comes to the DOJ itself. So I think that they're, that's why they continue to investigate this independently.
0: Okay, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, given the fact there's a division uh, between House Republicans, the Speaker's position, uh, and the Freedom Caucus position, and also uh, between uh, House Republicans and Senate Republicans who seem much less enthusiastic about some of these budget cuts than the House do. Uh, It sounds like a very complicated process to come to some sort of agreement. Uh, Can they work something out in 20 days?
3: I think we're going to see. I think that's going to be the biggest, uh, um, you know, the biggest what if on everybody's mind is obviously if there's going to be a government shutdown. Now, some members have already come out pretty confidently saying that they think that there is going to be one. I spoke with uh, Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee a couple of days ago, who um, very directly said that he expects that there's going to be a shutdown. I asked Chip Roy this today, and he said that uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens, which is probably what a lot of the uh, conservative Republicans who are still negotiating, um, you know with leadership and and, and trying to get things done here are going to do and they're also going to pivot blame to blame um either president biden or senate democrats and senate republicans um so a lot there's going to be a lot of blame shifting um you know i think it's unclear what's going to happen right now i would say that uh, we are slated for a government shutdown unless a deal uh unless a Twelve funding bills, which is likely very impossible, is going to get through the House and then the Senate, and uh, things work out that way. But with only eleven legislative days, it's not looking uh, very uh, optimistic here. But um, one thing I will add really quickly is that we have seen more than a handful of uh, House Republicans say that they're not afraid of a government shutdown. And if that's what it takes, then um, to either a uh, get their uh, uh, their financial goals or I should say fiscal goals, uh, achieved or, you know, to prove that Washington's broken, then that's what it takes. Uh,
0: well, let me ask you this about the speaker. Uh, is the speaker concerned about the pos- looking out for the interest of his party? Is the speaker concerned that there is a shutdown and it disrupts the economy? I mean, it seems to me some of the Freedom Caucus members do want a shutdown. Uh, And does this is a speaker concern that there if there is a shutdown uh, and, you know, the economy takes a blow, that this is going to rebound against Republicans in the 2024 election?
3: Yeah, so I will say that I don't I I, I would dispute that anybody actually wants and desires a government shutdown. I think that some people are making it out to say that they shouldn't fear one. Or that, uh, you know, if, this, if it comes to that, that they don't, um, you know, that, that that's what it is. I don't think it, it's the push. I think people want to get their uh, these, the, the funding figured out and to the levels that they want. Uh, I will say, Speaker McCarthy is really concerned. He's really come out hard against there being government shutdown. Uh, I think he um, is in agreement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So they're on the same page about that. And if you talk to some Democratic senators, um, I spoke with Brian Schatz of Hawaii last week. Who said that he's confident? Uh, it gives him a little bit more confidence that McCarthy has been really adamant on being opposed to a government shutdown. That he thinks that you know maybe there's some chance here that something's going to work out.
0: Uh, well, I certainly hope it does because I don't think uh, a government shutdown would be good for uh, just about anybody. So we'll have to see what happens, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show to discuss it again if you're willing. Uh our guest in this half hour has been Mika Solna, who covers Congress uh, for Punchbowl News. Uh, after the break, uh, we're going to bring on a second guest. Uh, we're going to bring on our second guest uh, to talk about the legacy of nine eleven. And again, today is the twenty second anniversary. After be Colonel Cedric Layton, retired U.S. Air Force retired, who's CNN's military analyst. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, we're going to talk national security issues uh, and the lasting legacy of the terrorist attacks on 9-11 with CNN military analyst uh, Cedric Layton. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to play this clip of uh, President Biden um, talking about uh, the legacy of
1: 9-11. To all the families and loved ones who still feel the ache of that missing piece of your soul, we'll keep the memory of all those precious lives stolen and reflect on all that was lost in the fire and ash on that terrible September morning. It's good to remember these memories help us heal and on this day when the price feels so great Jill and I are holding all of you close to our hearts. The American story itself changed that day What we will not change what we cannot change is the character of this nation the character of sacrifice and love of generosity and grace of strength and resilience. I hope we'll remember that in the midst of these dark days, we dug deep, we cared for each other, and we came together. We regained the light by reaching out to one another and finding something all too rare, a true sense of national unity. That was, of course,
0: President Biden discussing the lasting legacy of the 9-11 terror attacks uh, and the victims, uh, I'd like to, uh, on this day, on the 22nd anniversary of the uh, terror attacks on the Twin Towers in New York City, I would like to remember uh, one of the victims. Um, one of the victims was uh, one of my high school um, high school teachers, uh, Father Francis Grogan, we called him Father Frank. Uh, He, besides uh, teaching at my alma mater, Holy Cross High School in Queens, uh, was a uh, chaplain to the New York City Fire Department, and he died that day tending to his flock. Um, uh, the firefighters uh, who re- who uh, responded to the twin to- towers and did everything they could s- do to save uh, as many uh, the ca- casualties as possible. Uh, anyway, I don't want this day to go by without uh, remembering Father Frank, and I think of him every time we celebrate this tragic anniversary. Our guest in this half hour to talk about the legacy of uh, 9-11 and to talk about national security issues generally uh, is CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force, retired. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company after serving in the United States Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. His Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, and his website is CedricLayton.com. Colonel Layton, uh, thanks for joining us again uh, on Deadline DC. It's always a pleasure to have you
4: on. Well, thanks so much, Brad. It's always good to be with you, even on a day like this where we remember so many people, like Father Frank. And uh, it's uh, it's always an honor to be with you.
0: Uh, well, let's start talk. Let's start with the conversation about a 9 Nine eleven had a profound impact on the United States and the world. Uh, can you uh, talk about the uh, legacy in terms of uh, American national security policies?
4: Well, for one thing, Brad, it changed the way in which we fight wars. Uh, one of the key things that uh, we learned or adapted to uh, in the wake of 9-11 uh, was that the military basically became a counterterrorism force. Uh, counterinsurgency became a prime element of, of what we did. So between the doctrines of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, uh, we Basically changed our military force posture, and our forces were originally designed to fight an enemy like this old Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, in the letters in the post World War II era, but now uh, with 9/11, uh, the mission had changed. And in fact, uh, you know, old enemies became pseudo friends in some cases. In fact, the first phone call from a foreign leader to President George W. Bush on that day was from Vladimir Putin. Uh, so, you know, things have changed, you know, as, as the uh, Cold War receded and then uh, this new situation has developed. Uh, what we learned in the global war on terror uh, is something that may not apply to what comes next, but we definitely, you know, from a national security perspective, really emphasized the counterinsurgency aspect of operations. Uh, the forces became uh, much leaner, much more lethal in terms of their capabilities uh, and it modernized us in a way uh, that uh, involved intelligence collection, communications and uh, really the maneuver of forces. But uh, you know, for uh, people out there who are looking at this from a civilian point of view, um, I think it changed the attitude of the country toward external threats and for a while it uh, resulted in a, a very different relationship between the military and the United States population at large. Okay, Uh,
0: let's uh, talk about uh, some of the uh, issues that national security issues that confront us now. Uh, First, uh, you know, I I want to uh, bring up to date, I think since we had you on last time, uh, there's been a uh, ukrainian uh counteroffensive against the russian occupying of forces in uh eastern and southern part of ukraine uh there has been some concern that the counteroffensive uh hasn't achieved its goals it hasn't uh, succeeded in uh driving the Russians out of some of the territories they occupied. Uh, What's your assessment of the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive against the Russians?
4: Well, I think the counteroffensive could have been far more effective if the Ukrainians had uh, more long-distance weapons, and that includes not only something known as the Army Tactical Missile System, or ATACMS, but also – fighter jets. And uh, the favorite uh, the Ukrainians always tout was the F-16, of course, and they will be getting them. The problem is that a lot of these deliveries are too late in order to make this present version of the counteroffensive effective. Uh, So what you end up having is kind of a a situation where uh, the Ukrainian side is going into this area somewhat with a hand tied behind its back uh, in that they don't have control of the skies. They don't have What's known as air superiority over the battlefield. Uh, that will be remedied uh, probably within the next few months. Uh, but uh, it's, it's one of those situations where uh, you either go in all the way or you, know, you have half measures. So I think the Ukrainians have done a remarkable job considering what's available to them. Uh, they have not really lost territory in this latest situation, in this latest phase of the war. Uh, they have gained a little bit of territory, uh, and we have to be careful not to, uh, you know, think of this as a short uh, situation, a short conflict, like let's say the Arab-Israeli conflict or something like this. This is far more like a war of attrition uh, that has is going to have various phases, uh, and in the phase that we're in right now, there are some advances. Uh, but there are no uh, real massive gains because the Russians have been able to entrench themselves in the areas that they've been occupying. And that makes it really hard for the Ukrainians to advance at this point. Uh,
0: the uh, lack of progress uh, in the counteroffensive have intensified uh, falls, uh, especially among House Republicans uh to uh, i don't think their tail's the right word uh but to uh the way they put it and ang- the blank check for ukrainian military aid uh that's likely to be a topic of discussion in the next 20 days um, as we are reaching a budget crisis at the end of this month if the house uh and the senate and the president don't agree on the budget what is the argument you'd make to congress about continuing military aid to ukraine because i think it is an issue that's that is uh,
4: uh, get, getting we'll have a lot you'll we'll hear a lot about in the next 20 days yeah we certainly will Brad i think the the biggest argument that you can make is uh, the ukrainians are fighting the battle for democracy in on their soil and at their time in this in that place and it's uh, you know very different from us having to do it for them, or NATO being attacked. So that's the real difference in this case. Uh, So if we fund Ukraine now, we will make it a lot easier for us in the future. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a
0: short break now for our radio listeners. Uh, Our guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, USA Air Force retired, Uh, who you've probably seen on CNN discussing military matters. Uh, We'll be back right after this very short break. Welcome back. Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I want to welcome back especially our radio listeners. Uh, I want to remind our radio listeners that if they want to watch Deadline DC as well as listen to it, you can watch us on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. Or on Facebook.com front slash Deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Our guest in this half hour is CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, When we went to break, we were discussing uh, the uh, president's trip to the G20 summit uh, in New Delhi. Uh, recently, uh, in fact, I think yesterday and the day before, he made a trip to Vietnam. Uh, Colonel Layton, let's start off, uh, why don't you talk about the reasons for the President
4: Biden's trip to Vietnam? Yeah, it's really interesting because, of course, we all remember the Vietnam War and how much we were really enemies with the Vietnam, especially uh, what you know, was once North Vietnam and then became all of Vietnam. Uh, once the fall of Saigon happened on uh, April 30th, 1975, uh, but the big thing with this is that we're seeing a change in the balance of power. The the Vietnamese have long been a client state of the formerly Soviet Union and then Russia, and they still get most of their weaponry from the Russians. However. Uh, They also have China in their neighborhood. In fact, they are neighbors of China. And they fought a short war with the Chinese back in the late 1970s, one in which they did pretty well against a much larger China. Uh, And the Vietnamese have never really made peace with the Chinese. uh, And what they're doing is they're balancing their situation between great powers. In this case, uh, they know that the Chinese are going to try to take over areas that they're claiming, for example, in the South China Sea that are claimed between not only China, but also Taiwan, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, and a few other countries. So the Vietnamese are basically saying to the United States, uh, we'll accept a relationship with you. Uh, We may look at you protecting us against an ever-growing China. And uh, the Chinese threat is something that uh, they perceive very acutely because of that war that they had back in the late 70s, and it's something where uh, the Vietnamese are seeing this as a way in which they can balance uh, the issues between China and the United States, and they can leverage the United States. So, in essence, uh, we are regaining a presence in Vietnam uh, after you know several years, and uh, the relationship, of course, is. We've had diplomatic relationships with them uh, for several years now, several decades. uh, But this has actually elevated that relationship to a uh, much more meaningful level. And it could include the sharing of intelligence information directly with the Vietnamese military. Uh, So that, of course, is a big, big change uh, from uh, just a few decades ago.
0: Yeah, you know, it seems to me uh, back in the Obama administration... Uh, President Obama used to talk about uh, we are so preoccupied with things in the Middle East all the time. I remember uh, President Obama at least talked about the need to uh, focus more in um, Asia uh, and the Far East than the Middle East, uh, but it really didn't seem to get much traction. Uh, but it seems to me President Biden is making a real effort to focus American national security in Asia. Uh, a few weeks before he uh, left for um, Asia, uh, he held, had a summit at the White House with the uh, leaders of uh, Japan and South Korea, uh, who uh, don't get along very well uh, because of their long antagonistic history. Uh, he uh, obviously went to India for the G20 conference, met with the Indian Prime Minister. Uh, he is uh, then he made a trip to Vietnam, another country that fears Chinese influence in that area is the Philippines. And how do you think? You know, the president went out of his way to say that uh, this was he's not attempting to contain China. Uh, he said he's trying to build American relationships in the Far East. Uh, how do you think the Chinese uh, feel about this uh, new effort from the Biden administration to uh, reach
4: out um, to countries in the Far East? Well, I think the Chinese are very concerned about it. And uh, the pivot to Asia that uh, was talked about during the Obama administration and attempted... Uh, like you said, never fully materialized, but President Biden has definitely uh, made a lot of uh, progress in this area. You know, the relationship with India is much stronger than it has been in years past. Uh, And it's one of those things that, uh, you know, kind of works in building blocks. And uh, uh, President Biden, it looks like he's building upon Uh, what previous administrations, especially the Obama administration, were able to do. Uh, But it's far more advanced, and in fact, uh, President Biden and his national security team uh, are very keen to compete with the Chinese. Uh, The Chinese have their Belt and Road Initiative, an economic uh, tie-in from Asia into Europe. Uh, Well President Biden has his initiative, which he announced in New Delhi at the G20 conference where he's tying India and the Middle East to Europe. Uh, So that's directly a a competitor to the Belt and Road Initiative to the Chinese. And the Chinese do think uh, that uh, they are in fact being contained and of course they'll bristle at that. Uh, But President Biden's view is that uh, the Chinese have to be part of the world order that uh, it is one that is based on law, one that is based on institutions, and that is something that the Chinese are wanting to overturn with their Russian partners. So that is, I think, the competition that we're going to see, uh, but the administration, the Biden administration, is playing this one right, in my opinion.
0: Uh, uh, I think the big fear among uh, many uh, national security experts uh, is that, that at some point, China is going to make an effort to um, attack and occupy uh, Taiwan, um, which is another uh, country in uh, Asia that has concerns about Chinese hegemony. How imminent? What what do you think of the possibility in the next couple of years of China making an aggressive move to occupy Taiwan?
4: Well, I think if you look at uh, what they're saying in Beijing uh, you know, within the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government, as well as the Chinese military, Brad, it's pretty clear to me that they do have offensive intent when it comes to Taiwan. They would prefer to be able to take it over without firing a shot. But when you look at their military maneuvers, you look at the way they've encircled Taiwan with their maritime forces, with their naval forces and their version of the Coast Guard. Uh, it's pretty clear that they want to, in essence, choke off Taiwan as kind of an anaconda-like strategy. Uh, so the Chinese are highly likely to attempt something if several things, you know, could happen. But if, for example, their economy goes really south, they need something as a national rallying cry uh, to reunite China because they consider Taiwan to be a Chinese province, although the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled over Taiwan. Uh, Yet uh, it is one of those things that uh, they see it as an integral part of China and they would like to make it so and, uh, you know, just look at what happened with Hong Kong after, uh, you know, the the latest troubles there. So that's something that could very well be in Taiwan's future if Taiwan isn't made a porcupine in essence, something that's very difficult uh, for an anaconda to swallow.
0: Uh, let me ask you a question on one uh, last topic, and we only have about a minute left. Uh, there's been renews, uh, renewed discussion in Washington about uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville, um, a Republican senator from Alabama, uh, who's using his uh, Senate prerogatives to hold up uh, the promotion of hundred, hundreds of uh, you know, Army, Navy, uh, Space Force, um, and Air Force, um, uh, generals and admirals. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there's really no way to stop him from doing it. Individual senators have a lot of power. Uh, Could you talk about the risk that uh, Senator Tuberville is uh,
4: entering into by blocking these promotions? Yeah, it's really dangerous, uh, Brad, because one of the key things that he's doing is he's leaving a lot of positions vacant. Yes, the job is kind of getting done. uh, But any type of initiative, any type of new plans, any type of uh, new programs, uh, you know, such as a new fighter jet or a new tank or a new cyber capability that would be necessary to counter China. That stuff is not getting done because it doesn't have. Uh, the leadership impetus, or it won't get the leadership impetus unless there is a real person, senate confirmed person, sitting at the top of either the service or the joint staff or a combatant command or an agency like the National Security Agency. So all of these are being impacted by this. It is an absolute bonus to our adversaries, and it is detrimental to our national security to have Senator Tubble will do this, uh, and it's something that is, we're going to pay a big price for if it's not fixed right, right quickly. Uh,
0: Colonel Layton, thanks very much for joining us on Deadline DC. Every time I have you on, I wish we had more time to talk, which is why we keep inviting you back. Uh, very insightful remarks about national security. That's all for Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon. Uh, we'll be back soon. I want to thank our guest, uh, Mika Solna from Punchbowl News. Uh, Cedric Layton, a CNN military uh, analyst, and, of course, our intre- interpret producer, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, we'll be back soon, if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise.